Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone here in person and online. I think I have a good friend and former neighbor joining us online, so welcome. Um, for those of you I don't know, my name's Deirdre Chance, and I'm part of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church, and just want to thank the elders again for the opportunities they give me to come up and preach. Um, for the last year, <laughs> we've really been waiting almost a year, maybe not quite, other parts of the world, maybe over a year, but we've really been waiting for COVID to be over, to be able to return to some form of normalcy, you know, whatever it was like for us uh, before COVID. So it wasn't real fun when Lawrence Simmons came into the ministry team meeting on Thursday and was quoting Michael Osterholm, who if you don't know who Michael Osterholm is, he's the epidemiologist and director of, I think it's the Center for Infectious Disease at the U of M. He actually had quoted a lot of those waves and spikes that would hit in July and in the fall. So he was quoting him saying that Michael Osterholm is now saying that he believes there's good reason to believe that there's going to be another spike in March. And my reaction was like, no, no, there will not. <laughs> and I think Lawrence even articulated this, like, no, that was my response because that's what I want to believe. So then I did what most of us do when we get something that we don't want to believe. I Googled it. <laughs> and unfortunately, there was more information <laughs> popping up in front of me. Other people, I think one noteworthy one um, was from UCSF, a professor of medicine who was saying that he um, also thinks that we're not going to get to this herd immunity due to the variants and what he calls a lack of vaccine acceptability. You know, he was just transparently observing and recognizing that a lot of people um, are hesitant, are a little guarded to the vaccine because of health concerns or politics or if they're a member of a minority community and there's a, a sense of distrust um, and he actually said that he thinks that if we don't reach 70% herd immunity, that we're going to be in this quasi-limbo stage, and next Thanksgiving and Christmas is going to be this continued opening, reop or closing, reopening, masks, not masks, which sounded even worse to me because, you know, a spike, okay, that is what it is, but just this continued waiting and uncertainty sounds um, worse to me. And, you know, let's be honest, <laughs> we as an American society, I think just as modern people in the world, we do not like to wait. <laughs> we pay good money and put forth good effort and time and resources so we don't have to wait. You know, we have technology and products and we pay dearly to limit waiting. We don't want to wait. And even if it's not COVID that we're waiting for, you know, I think in our own family, my husband has really been waiting since October of 2019 for a long-term secure job. You know, maybe you're waiting too for something other than COVID to be over, a job or health or a child or for your children to grow and be gone sometimes or a spouse. You know, it's hard to wait. And from today's readings, uh, we see God's promises clearly. And we can appreciate that the Jewish people spent a lot of their history waiting for God to fulfill his promises. If you just, if you're here in person, if you just go through um, the printed text of the references, if you're at home, I'm sorry, I did do kind of a smattering of verses, but if you just work through those, 
we see that God promised to send an offspring who would crush the serpent's head, metaphorically, poetically meaning that he would crush the curse of sin and the enemy. The next one's in Genesis, that God promised to send an offspring who would bless all families of the earth. He promised to send an offspring who would be greater than Moses and by implication greater than the law. He promised to send an offspring who would have an eternal, good, righteous kingdom. He promised to send an offspring who would bring the new covenant and the promised spirit to dwell in our hearts. Deuteronomy says for the, God's word to be written on our hearts. And finally, that Second Chronicles passage, he promised that that offspring, that Messiah, would come from Jerusalem after God's people are back in the land. And we see throughout the scriptures different snapshots of God's people waiting and watching. Uh, Genesis 5, 28, we see a snapshot of Noah's father, Lamech, naming him Noah in hopes that maybe this will be the one to end the curse of our painful toil and labor. We see Noah's father waiting for that offspring. Um, in the passages we read today, First uh, and Second Chronicles, we just finished up Ezekiel and Ezekiel that was read today. The faithful reader of the Old Testament, whether it's before the cross or after the cross, recognizes that the Messiah, the promised offspring, is going to be from the line of David and Solomon and be the one who ushers in this new covenant. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, adds to it that the Messiah, the offspring, will be crushed for humankind's iniquities, but by knowledge of him, many will be counted righteous. And then I think one of my favorite snapshots of God's people waiting for the promised offspring comes in Luke 2, and that's what we're going to be studying next in our next series. But in Luke 2, we see, we read of a man named Simeon who is promised by God that he will not see death before God's promised Messiah comes. And then we read the account of Simeon being in the temple and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seeing the infant Jesus being dedicated there, proclaims that this is the salvation for Israel and for the Gentiles. And then in that same account in Luke 2, it's a great account to read, there's a woman there named Anna. She's a widowed prophetess, and she sees the scene going on with Simeon and the text literally says that she goes out and she speaks of Jesus to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So we can create this timeline and this mental picture of the Jews as they waited for God to fulfill his promises. But I think we have to be careful maybe resist the temptation to move too fast just because we're on the other side of the history and make sure we don't minimize or dismiss what God's people endured as they waited. As they waited for this promised offspring, as they waited to be blessed, as they waited to be a great nation, they waited while they were enslaved in Egypt. They waited when they were freed from slavery and then under the weight of the law given through Moses. They waited while they were engaged in war and battles to reclaim their ancestral land. 
They waited during the golden years under King David and King Solomon. They waited after the golden years for another king who would bring about this good kingdom, this eternal kingdom. They waited like we just read in Ezekiel. They waited during national collapse, the collapse of their nation, and they waited during exile while prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah preached to them the new covenant. They waited as they returned to Jerusalem and did the hard work of rebuilding. They waited while in Jerusalem for this Messiah while a foreign government came and occupied and controlled their government, their land, the Roman government. And in Hebrews 11, we can see a record of some of God's people, the heroes of faith, waiting with confidence and hope. Uh, In fact, it even specifically says in Hebrews 11 how Moses is waiting for this offspring. Um, But as we read most of the Old Testament narratives and stories and accounts, we don't really see a picture of most of God's people waiting with hope. We see a different picture of most of God's people waiting. We see them grumbling and complaining right after they've been led out of Egypt, delivered from slavery with divine, miraculous, supernatural intervention, we see them grumbling and complaining. And it quickly moves after that um, into worship of other idols. I think the two uh, most grievous accounts to me, the record of God's people worshiping other idols, occurs right after they're freed Again, supernaturally, miraculously by God out of slavery. There's this beautiful covenant scene on the mountain where they're given the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mountain to get a written record of that law. And the people are like, I don't know, it's been like a month, like, well, we don't know where Moses is. (laughs) So Moses' brother Aaron is like, all right, give me your jewelry. Let's shape it in the form of a calf. And Aaron's brother, Moses' brother Aaron... (laughs) literally says to the people, this is your God who delivered you out of slavery to Egypt. The other heinous one, sad one to me, is we see a few of the kings of Israel actually sacrificing their children, killing their children on altars in worship of other gods. Other times in the Old Testament accounts, maybe it's not quite that active, um, it's a more passive, we see the people distracted. They're distracted by the nations around them. They say they want to be like the nations around them. We want a king like the nations around us. God was supposed to be their king. They want a person king. God in his patience gives them one. So we see the people grumbling, complaining, worshiping idols, getting distracted. And we also see extremism as they wait on the promises of God. Israel clearly understood through the scriptures, especially Deuteronomy and other parts of the Pentateuch, that they had lost their land due to a lack of faithfulness to God and obedience of the law. And so their nation was destroyed. They were sent into exile. The 10 tribes of Israel in the north, they never get that land back. Quickly, the Assyrians are allowed to colonize their land. They kind of go through some superstition to be able to stay in there, but they stay there. And even when the inhabitants can move back into Jerusalem, 
and they rebuild again. The Roman government comes in and they're occupied and controlled by a foreign government. And so again, many people realize that they have lost their land, mainly the Pharisees and scribes. Um, and so their solution is a strict, extreme adherence to the law. So much so that when the promised Messiah finally comes, they're putting that Messiah under the law, um, which you see a lot in the New Testament. So we read this long history of God's people waiting. Some people waiting in faith and confidence, but many waiting with skepticism or uncertainty, a lack of what they're even waiting for. And so I think, you know, for us as modern people today, what are we waiting for? What are we hoping for? You know, I think when we look out in our world and experience our world, we all innately realize things aren't the way they ought to be. It seems like when I look out in the world, it seems like something went wrong. You know, if I think through my own childhood experiences, Childhood death, divorce, isolation. It feels like that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. When I hear other people's stories of abuse, of homelessness, of sickness, of isolation, it seems like something went wrong. And I think we're all waiting for a solution to those things. You know, if we're people of faith, we're waiting, that solution we think is God. We're waiting for God to come and make it right. For the Christian, we realize the kingdom of God is an already and not yet fully kingdom. The kingdom of God has already come, but it's not fully here yet. But so whether we're a Christian or a non-Christian, together alike, we're waiting for a solution a solution that'll bring perfect justice, perfect peace, the end of suffering, the end of pain, the end of death. But as we wait, you know, what does it seem like, you know, if, if you're not intentional, as you go through waiting, what normally happens in you or what normally happens in us? You know, normally if, if we're not doing something intentional, we can start to slide as we wait towards complacency, or forgetfulness, or laziness. Or maybe if we're focused a little more on, we really want this, <laughs> we might start to get irritable, impatient, demanding, self-pity, you know, forms of depression can start to take in then. Or maybe we start to get doubtful. You know, sometimes we may start to wonder, if there is even a God, why would he make us wait? Why would he make us wait for justice? Why would he make us wait for peace? Why would he make us wait for the end of suffering and the end of pain and the end of death? You know, we can start down this slippery slope of doubt. You know, we start to wonder what good can possibly come from waiting. I mean, doesn't he love us? Doesn't he see my suffering? Doesn't he see the suffering of others? Does he not want us to have good things? 
Or is it maybe that he isn't capable, he isn't powerful enough to give us good things? Or if he's powerful enough, is he just not interested in me enough to give me good things? Waiting is is more difficult when we're not secure, when we're not confident about our future. You know, just by way of analogy, if you're engaged to be married, in general, it's easier to fight loneliness because you feel fairly certain that you're about to be united to someone you love who's going to be there with you for a lifetime. So it's not so hard to fight loneliness. But if we don't know if we'll ever be married or in a lasting marriage, and if we look to our future and think, I could be single forever or for my lifetime, and if singleness communicates to you, you'll be alone, I don't think it necessarily does. I don't think that's true, but for many in our society, it does, or it's a, it's a lie we have to fight. If being single communicates to you that you'll be alone for a lifetime, it's harder to fight feelings of loneliness and isolation. But waiting isn't as hard when we're confident in our future. There's actually a relative in my husband's extended family who was in um, a serious car accident when he was a minor. Um, his older brother was driving, I think another sibling was in the car, and they went through legal proceedings, and it was found to be the other driver's fault. And so this relative um, got a sizable amount of money when he was a minor, and it was put into a trust fund for him for when he turned 18. He did not have any financial insecurities about his future because he was very confident in that trust fund. If we see God as reliable, dependable, capable source of provision and protection for us, we're confident as we wait. But if we don't see God as capable or interested or powerful in providing and protecting us, we have difficulty as we wait. And those things that we talked about, complacency, laziness, irritability, demanding self-pity, or we could go into, you know, like, might as well just party and be licentious and greedy if God isn't going to be there for me. But the root of the problem isn't the waiting. That wasn't the problem for the Jew, Jews, Jewish people, and it's not our problem either. The root of the problem is a lack of faith and a lack of confidence in God to be powerful enough and interested enough to take care of both our earthly future and condition as well as our eternal future and condition. Can we have a confident hope by faith in Christ? Or to put it another way, what confidence does faith in Christ promise? In the first few chapters of Ephesians, faith in Christ promises to give us a confidence because we now have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, guaranteeing both a present and eternal 
inheritance and that we now have the identity, the position of the beloved of God. We are declared holy, blameless, and above reproach. By Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and by faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we are confident that we are delivered from the wrath of God to come, it says in 1 Thessalonians. We are confident that the glory of God, of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, will appear. It talks in Titus 2. By faith in Christ's resurrection, we're confident that our broken down bodies are going to be restored and resurrected. And by faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and we're confident in not only our broken down bodies being resurrected, but that even all of creation will be redeemed and restored and freed from its bondage of corruption, Romans 8 tells us. And by Christ's life, death, resurrection, and return, we are confident that there is a new heaven and a new earth where God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes and destroy death and destroy grief and crying and pain. That's in Revelations 19. That's how the Bible ends. We are confident in the past, completed, sufficient work of Christ that now transforms our present narrative and gives us a confident hope for both our earthly and eternal future. One of my favorite theologian psychologists, Eric Johnson, states it this way. Christians are to live towards God's future. The Bible tells Christians that we will be perfected, made like Christ in eternity and dwell with God and each other in harmony and blessedness forever. And this forward-looking orientation momentously alters the present. So we wait with confidence in God's power based on the life, the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus Christ. But I still think it's worth maybe thinking about, working through, but how do we wait? <laughs> how does faith in Christ transform us? Romans 8.24 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And in today's reading, we had Abraham's example in Hebrews 6.15, where it says that he waited patiently and obtained the promise. As we wait patiently, we obtain. As we wait by faith, with confidence in Christ's sufficient work, we are transformed into Christ-likeness. It is supernatural, and yet it incurs in our physical body, again, in the present narrative. The Bible talks about that when we believe in Christ, the old nature is gone, and the new nature has come. The old is gone, the new has come. And this new nature... The sinful nature has been conquered. It's been destroyed. But this new nature dwells in this body of flesh. But this new nature overcomes the temptations, 
and the sufferings that we experience in this body of flesh. Little by little, step by step, sometimes two steps back and then one step forward, and sometimes by one giant leap by God's supernatural, divine, miraculous interventions, but it always comes. It always comes and growth is always there, just as sure as spring always comes. You know, like our springs are crazy. I like to call it sprinter, but spring always comes. No matter what happens, there's always growth. There's never not a spring. And in the same way, our new nature helps us to keep growing by faith and confidence in Christ. And God, in his providence and sovereignty, works it out so that he not only gives us good things, but he makes us good in the process. Uh, Hebrews 2, 10 and 11 talks about how Jesus is a suffering savior. And it says that he was perfected as he suffered. And then 2, 11 says that Jesus who sanctifies and we who are sanctified have one source. We learn to be perfected as well through suffering. And I would just say from my own personal testimony that I have experienced God most in the midst of suffering. I've experienced God in the midst of suffering so that I think, God, if I get to have more of you in the midst of suffering, the suffering's worthwhile. And so that may be like how God changes us. You may be like me and still wonder, but what's the purpose to waiting? Like, couldn't he do it a different way? <laughs> Why does it have to be through waiting? Um, and again, Eric Johnson suggests this, and I, I think it's worth pondering. Eric Johnson suggests that there's greater joy and increased manifestation of his beauty in us as we wait. You know, God could have just in day one brought Jesus. <laughs> That'd be the end, right? We just have Genesis 4. It'd be done. I think, again, we as modern people would prefer that. <laughs> but there's something about the beauty and the greater joy in waiting and the unfolding of this plan. You know, we, we all like stories of great treasure. This is back to Eric Johnson's quote. He says, we all like stories of great treasure, treasure that's been hidden for a long time and then it's suddenly found. Or think of the joy in hide and seek. We were actually just at the Halbergs on Friday night and their um, grandson was there and he was kind of reenacting this game of hide and seek and going, hmm, and then he'd just pretend to discover something and just have peals of laughter. You know, that, that joy that's innately in us from our youth of hide and seek. Or think about the novelist who spends page after page saying it with deliberation and poetry. Again, could have said it on the first page, but there's increased beauty and joy as you read page after page, or like a symphony or orchestra, or the planning of a surprise party for someone. The story of the gradual manifestation of the glory of God simply fosters greater joy and the increasing manifestation of his beauty in us. So just to close, um, just think and reflect for a second of a situation that tempts you to not have confidence in Christ, to not have confidence in your future. You know, maybe something that you think, if that doesn't happen, 
all's lost. <laughs> or maybe we don't think it, but we act that way. What would it be like to look at that situation against the backdrop of confidence in Christ? To look almost through that situation with confidence in Christ to a future in Christ. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another so that we can be confident and steadfast in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel as we wait. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, please forgive us, Lord, for the things we allow to come into our lives, complacency, doubt, fears, rather than filling our hearts with you. Lord, help us to push aside the, the material distractions out of our hearts so that we can fill more with you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen each of us in the innermost being by the power of the Holy Spirit so that together, as this local body, we can grasp the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of your love for us. And that together, we would grow in the knowledge of that love and also to see your power that you can do immeasurably beyond all we can ask or imagine. Give us that, that love, that hope, that confidence, Lord. We trust this is in your will, and we pray confidently through the name of our advocate and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.